Uh, well, as Nick said, we are in the, uh, we're in the Advent series, Six Degrees Below Horizon, A Light Has Dawned, and we're looking uh, as a foundational piece of, of this series, uh, the verses in Isaiah chapter 9, which are a specific prophecy about the coming Messiah. So we're going to continue there this morning. I'm going to reread the verses that Tom Werner uh, took us through last week. I'm going to look at it from a, a little bit different angle than he did uh, as we continue to progress uh, right up in and through Christmas Eve uh, and the idea of a light of salvation dawning. So if you have a Bible, you can look at Isaiah 9. Uh, if not, you can follow along. The words will be on the screen. The first seven verses, hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined or a light has dawned. You, speaking of God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot for trampling warrior is battled in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and on the, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. We pray together with me. Father, in some way, the darkness affects all of us. In some way, in the last week, each of us have been impacted by darkness, which we have created by our own sinfulness or we felt the ramifications of the darkness in someone else's life. There isn't a human being that isn't touched by the darkness of sin and our rebellion against you. Father, as Isaiah wrote to a people who were in desperate crisis as a, as a nation, we have not been invaded by foreigners, but Lord, we certainly in our day and age, in our culture, face many, many spiritual and emotional challenges. Father, many of them are of our own doing because we have turned our back on you and we have gone our own way. Yeah, Father, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You don't leave us alone. You don't abandon us. But you come to us and you speak truth into our lives. And you inspired Isaiah to liken your coming as to the dawn that approaches. So the people who have been in darkness, people who have been lost, people who have been wandering and confused and directionless, can see clearly again. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the light of the world. I thank you that as we look at this passage this morning, we are looking at words about you. We're not gathered here to gain insight or advice from man. Lord, what I have to say is of no value whatsoever. Lord, it is only your eternal word that stands 
from time past to time present to time future. It is only your love and grace that knows no boundaries. It is only your wisdom that can invade our hearts and minds and change us from the inside out. So, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from my thoughts, that you would forgive me my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what people would hear and know of you this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, the type of dawn I want to talk about this morning is astronomical dawn. Astronomical dawn is the moment after which the sky is no longer completely dark. I'm going to kind of center in on that today. It's a time at which the sun is 18 degrees below the horizon. And if you look at the picture there, you can, you can see exactly what the words are speaking about. The sky is no longer completely dark, but most of it still is. There's the hope of a new day, uh, but if, if you, you know, kind of do the math, if you remember back to geometry, 18 degrees is, is still a pretty good distance to be covered before the sun actually breaks the plane of the horizon, and so there is more darkness than there is light, and yet there is a hope. There is the opportunity to turn to the east and say, a new day is coming. This morning we're going to talk about the dawn of freedom, and that might seem a bit odd to you because we, of all people, are the most free people in the history of the world. Uh, And yet I would suggest to you that that slavery comes in many different forms, uh, not just physical slavery, uh, not just economic slavery, but I believe the most significant slavery that every person experiences in their life is a spiritual slavery. In fact, if you go back to our Roman series, which we'll take up again the beginning of January... Uh, and you go back and you look at Romans 6 and 7, or you go back and listen to sermons that uh, are on our website that you can hear on those chapters, you'll hear that theme over and over again. Maybe you recall it this morning, kind of in the dim recesses of your mind. I know it's been a few weeks, uh, actually months since we've been in those chapters, but Paul talks about being enslaved to sin. Paul talks about being sold as a slave to sin, and the conclusion to which the Apostle Paul comes to is that he is a wretched man, that his condition is hopeless, that, that he has no opportunity for redemption within himself. He can't look inward and find the solution to the spiritual slavery which he experiences every day of his life. And if you and I want to be honest, and we want to be genuine in our relationship with God, if we look in our own spiritual mirror, I believe we'll find the same thing. I was praying this morning, as I do on Sundays before I come and, and preach, and I was, I was lamenting again, I think probably in, in, a, in a good way, the fact that I am such a wretch. And, and, and I think it was good to be reminded of that this morning, uh, it, it, because as, as I stand up here and preach, it would be easy for me to tell you what you need to be doing, or how you need to be thinking, or how you need to be believing. And yet I was struck again this morning with how much Paul describes me in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans. I'm a slave to sin. I'm estranged from God forever, and that's of my doing. It's not like I was trying real hard and God turned his back on me. I walked away from God, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, with every fiber of my being. And yet God brings light. He wants to free us from the spiritual slavery in which we find ourselves So the question is, how does a a 2,800-year-old obscure promise give reason to believe that the sky of spiritual darkness will become not completely dark, but yet burst forth with the new day? 
is a real spiritual freedom that you and I can experience beginning right now today that will carry on into eternity. I believe that this passage shows that very clearly as it names this one who is to come. And so I want to look at this passage, and, and before we jump into it, what I, want to, what I want us to see is that the identity that's revealed in the dawning of this redemption, it calls us to trust God's promises even as the darkness lingers. Let's not be mistaken, the darkness lingers. Did, did you listen to Nick's story? <laughs> and there are dozens and dozens of stories like that seated right here in this room, maybe not about a child, but every one of us has a story to tell about how the darkness has affected our lives. And so every day, Christians, disciples of Jesus have a choice to make. Am I going to live with the circumstances of the darkness and focus on that? Or rather, am I going to turn to the promises of God? And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God, that's the same question for you as well. Faith is not a one-time deal where I I come forward and I say, oh, I'm going to put my faith in Christ. And then that's it. It's a day-by-day, it's a moment-by-moment experience where we are continually putting our trust and our hope in God. But it's in this identity that's revealed in this dawning that calls us to trust in the promises of God. The darkness lingers, and I've given just three thoughts on that. I've mentioned the present circumstances, but also the passing of time. It's been 2,800 years since Isaiah wrote these words. (laughs) It's been a long time. Now, we've seen the coming of Christ. We kind of know how the story unfolds. But Jesus hasn't come back, and it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. That's a long time by man's standards. And so we may be tempted to say, I, you know what, I'm starting to think that these are really nice stories and really nice words and some great ideas for how to live your life, but, but I'm not sure I'm going to hang my hat on something that's taking so long to be fulfilled. Maybe it's not accurate. We've mentioned our present circumstances that can shroud our vision and looking to his hope. And the way uh, Isaiah sums it up in three words, gloom and anguish and contempt. <laughs> Gloom and anguish and contempt. That's a, you know, that, maybe that'll be the theme next year of the Christmas series. Gloom, anguish, and, and contempt. That doesn't really cheer you up. That doesn't make you want to go Christmas shopping this afternoon at all. And yet that's the reality of our circumstances from a spiritual perspective. So we need to know who God is going to work through in order to, to understand his promises. So I want, to, I want to look at the promises that God gives to Isaiah. And he basically says three things. He says a light has shined or a light has dawned on those who are in darkness. And Tom Warner pointed this out last week. That's in the present tense. This is something that has happened and continues to have an effect on our lives. What's the light that's dawned? The light is not a change in our circumstances. The light is the word of God. The light is the promises of God. We are not in darkness when it comes to God's claims about how he's going to bring redemption into our lives. We can't plead ignorance. We have the scriptures, the word of God right before us. He goes on to say that he's multiplied the nation. He's increased its joy. And uh, Paul is, is uh, or excuse me, Isaiah is looking to a day in which the nation of Israel will be redeemed. But he also talks about the pathway of the Gentiles. So he's talking about a nation that God is going to create, uh, believers from every walk of life, Jew and Gentile, black, white free, enslaved physically, people from all over the globe, every tribe, language, tongue, nation will come and worship Christ. And it will, the joy will be increased. And that, that word increased means you, you can't measure it. <laughs> it. It's so bountiful, you can't even necessarily get your mind around it. And the third promise is, is the one that, that we're really centering on this morning. You, God, have broken the yoke of the burden and the rod of the oppressor. 
Those are the promises that, that God makes. Those are tremendous promises. I don't think anybody sitting here this morning would argue that if, that if those really uh, became a reality in our lives, those would be a good thing. But the question is, is that realistic? Is God actually going to do those things? Or are they simply words that are there to kind of motivate us to, to hang in there and, and, and be good people, but they don't necessarily have any real power to change our lives? A lot of you know I coach hockey and my uh, JV development team had a game yesterday afternoon and, and we played awful. I mean, we played awful and we were undefeated. We had four wins and one tie. And I continue to say the same thing after every game. I'm astounded at the level of coaching on this team. It's just <laughs> remarkable. And yesterday after the game, I said, I don't know what's the matter with you guys, but, um, but we just played terrible. Uh, but there was a point in the game in the, in the third period where we had, we had fought back and it was four to three. Uh, and the referees were over at the penalty box sorting something out. And I called my players over the bench. I said, Kirkwood, get over here. And they came over. And I looked at them real serious. And I said, now I got a question for you guys. Said, yeah, Coach, what? I mean, they're eighth and ninth graders. You know, they're kind of, yeah. I said, and you guys got dates tonight? And you guys have any girls that are at all interested in you? I kind of went, what? And one guy goes, I, I think I'm going to hang out with a couple girls later. I'm like, cool, take a shower before you go. That would really be good. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing? And I said, guys. Just breathe a little bit. It's okay. Smile. We're, ha- we're having fun out here. It, it, you're holding, you know, you're just, you're choking your six. Let's relax and have a good time, whether we win or whether we lose. Now, I couldn't promise them really anything. I just offered something that would kind of break the tension, that would kind of let them just kind of step back and, and, and see it for what it was and, and not get too hung up on kind of where we were. But I didn't have a great promise to offer them. And I think that raises a serious question because these promises are promises of great hope. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the advent of Christ, is Christmas the dawn of a brief distraction from our pain? Or is it real hope of freedom? Is God just trying to, to, to get us distracted so we don't think about it that much? Or is he actually going to stand by his word and do what he sets out to do? Well, again, I think the answer to that question is not found so much in what this son does, but in his identity. Our liberty is not based on the activity of the son, on on his actions necessarily, first and foremost, but on his character by which he is known. So I want to spend just a few minutes this morning solely in verse 6 and the four different titles that God gives to the son who he promises to give to you and to me, and and see what kind of hope we find for spiritual freedom. The first name that God gives for this one is Wonderful Counselor. And I've I've tried to, in each one of these, as you'll see as we go along, I've tried to to put a couple of other uh, words that will help explain. And the word wonderful literally means supernatural. It literally means out of this world. Uh, It is something that only God can give. It is a wisdom that only God can have. And so this one who comes immediately, we see, as one who knows and understands on a depth which normal human beings cannot. You ever had moments where you you, you just know you're limited in your understanding? All the wisdom in the world doesn't seem to be able to, to answer the questions that you have. It's because your wisdom and my wisdom is not a supernatural wisdom. We are not the wonderful counselor. We don't possess that type of of spiritual wisdom, of supernatural wisdom. Everybody's probably been keeping up with all the, all the stuff that's going on in Washington. I'm sure you were as shocked as I was to learn that the Congressional Super Committee on the Deficit was, was at an impasse and didn't get anything done. 
how the Republicans all wanted to stop spending and the Democrats all wanted to tax more, and they kind of sat there and looked at each other. I know you're as shocked about that as I am, that, that they actually couldn't get that figured out, all right? But look at the wisdom of Jesus as compared to the wisdom of man. Look at the wisdom that Jesus brings into his earthly ministry. I'm not going to take a long time on this, but just to, to give you a couple of examples. Jesus gets confronted by a rich guy one day who says, I want to buy my way into heaven. Jesus says, great. That, that's an outstanding thought. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. I would have never thought to say that to the guy. I, I don't know what I would have, you know, as you're tied up to date, I'm not sure what I would say, but Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. And he saw that the man was in love with his possessions. And he said, you can't love your possessions and, and try to love me. They will never go together. And he offered a supernatural wisdom that brought, that brought the opportunity for life. He's talking to a bunch of self-righteous pastors one day. And he tells the story of the prodigal son. And you've probably heard this over, told over and over again. The, 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 the rebellious kid who gets his inheritance and he runs away and he blows it. He spends it on wild living and then he comes home after being so degraded that he worked in a pig pen. And he, and he tries to confess his sin to his father, but his father just welcomes him unconditionally, throws his robe around him and brings him home. And then Jesus starts to tell the story about the older brother out in the field who, while the father is throwing a party for the one who was lost, refuses to come in. He's so filled with indignation that God would forgive this one who's tarnished the family name. And what Jesus is saying to the self-righteous is, you don't get it. The story's not about the prodigal. The prodigal simply points out the fact that you don't think you need a savior. That you think your works are going to earn your place in heaven. And that you couldn't be further from the truth. And in your lives, the light has not yet dawned. I would never have that kind of wisdom to make that kind of story in such application. A bunch of other pastors one day bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of Jesus and says, the law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus doesn't say anything. So he stoops down and he starts writing in the dust. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, all of the pastors who were accusing her go away. One theologian has commented, what, no, the scripture doesn't say what Jesus was writing in the dust. One author says, I think he was writing the names of all those guys' girlfriends. And Jesus looks up and goes, where's everybody who's accusing you? She said, they're gone. He said, well, I'm not going to accuse you anymore, but go and, go and stop sinning. Go and think more of yourself. Go and look at yourself the way I look at you. as somebody worth dying for. I would never come up with that kind of wisdom. And so when Isaiah says, this is a wonderful counselor, that's not just a nifty little title. <laughs> He's speaking about the wisdom of God that is promised to you and to me as we approach the most significant decisions of our lives, the spiritual bondage in which we find ourselves apart from his grace. The second name of the four titles that are given to him is Mighty God, El Gabor in the, in the Hebrew, which means the mighty warrior. It's not just someone who is, who is strong. It's not just someone who is powerful, but it's someone who uses their power and uses their strength and, and uses their ability to fight for the good. In my generation, that was John Wayne in the movies, right? The, 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 the guy always coming to the rescue, all right? Uh, I'm not sure who it is in this generation. Somebody really famous was on TV the other night, and I looked at the city, I'm like, who is that? And she just shook her head and get a little rocking chair for you and put you on the porch. Um, but think of the, the person who not only is mighty, but actually uses their might for the good. This is a person who's strong and doesn't stand by and look at it and go, gee, I wish somebody would do something about that, but actually steps in and uses their strength to save others. Jesus 
went to the cross using his strength, using his purity, using his glory and his majesty, and he did battle on the cross for you and for me. And when God said, there is a price that must be paid for Tom's sin and for all the sins of the people of Green Tree Community Church and every other person that's ever lived, Jesus said, I'll give you my perfection in exchange for their imperfection. And he fought the battle of salvation for you and for me. He does not sit idly by. When Nick, it finally dawned on Nick to cry out to God, God was there all along, all along. He knew that pain. He knew that suffering. And he is there to be the mighty one who fights for us. The third name that the author uh, of Isaiah gives is everlasting father. And I, and I say there are never-ending care for the helpless because in particular in the Old Testament, as, as this is unpacked a bit, and, and father is not a term that is used often at all in the Old Testament for God. It's actually a very rare term until Jesus really introduces it thoroughly in his, uh, in his ministry on earth. But when we talk about the character of God in the Old Testament, we talk about the widows and the orphans. And he is a father to the fatherless. And what we need to see there is two things, not just the, 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 the love and the compassion of God, but do you see yourself as spiritually fatherless? Do you understand that the answers don't reside within your soul or within my soul? We can't figure this out on our own. We need to be adopted into the family of God. And God has compassion on those who need compassion, those who don't have another spiritual father, and that's you and that's me. And I put up here Psalm 68 and Psalm 103 because there are two passages in the Old Testament that speak specifically to this. And I'm going to do something a little bit odd right now, which I do every once in a while, so bear with me. Uh, Typically, if we have a responsive reading, we kind of do it towards the beginning of the service, or maybe we do it at the end of the service. Today, we're going to do it in the middle of the sermon. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you would, please, just to make sure you're still awake, because it's kind of dark in here. And I'll go, then you go, then I'll go, then you go. We're going to recite... Some of the verses that are found in these two psalms, and then I'll have you be seated and we'll move on. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. God settles the solitary or the, the lonely in a home. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Then all together, as a father shows compassion on his children. So the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Thanks, you can be seated. I wanted us to say those together because I want us to hear the message as well as see the message. And maybe this afternoon go back and read those verses over again. If if you have not understood that God is a father and you are the fatherless. Maybe you've known that before. Maybe you've been a disciple a long time and you've just... Miss that. Maybe this would be a good reminder for you. The one that is promised in Isaiah 9 is the one who, be, who becomes, who is a father to those who have no hope of a father. And then the last name that is given him is the Prince of Peace. 
And peace in Scripture always means two things. It's always directed in two different uh, directions. The first is harmony with God. So when, when the psalmist talks about peace, as he's writing his poetry, he's always talking in a vertical way first. He's always saying we need to, there needs to be a peace created between man and God. Why does he say that? Because there is no peace with God because of our sin. Because we've rebelled against him, because we have gone our own way, there exists no peace between us and God unless God reestablishes it. And what Isaiah is saying is that the first thing this prince is going to do is he's going to make sure that you and I are good with God. That the Lord does not count our sins against us as we just read. Why doesn't he count our sins against us? Because Jesus has made the peace. But that peace then goes from from vertical, it, it transitions and it goes horizontal. And it is never without the application of peace between people. There's never a conversation in Scripture where it's just me and God, and it never ends up flowing out of me and into my fellow man. And brothers and sisters, when, when we sing peace on earth, goodwill to men, we are the instruments through which God will flow that peace. Disciples of Jesus are the greatest hope for this world, no matter how few we may be in number, because it is through the God of the universe indwelling you and me through the grace of God, not because we're good, but because Jesus has done what he's done for us on the cross, that we can then turn that gaze outward and become peacemakers in our day and our time, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our community, whether God may raise some of you up to great leadership positions and you actually have the opportunity on a national level to create and make peace God is about harmony. And Jesus came and his cross restored the peace that we can now have with God. And he calls us to allow that indwelling to create peace with one another. You may be sitting here this morning extraordinarily upset with somebody in your family or a friend or a business partner. Are you going to go and make the peace because God has done that for you? I have to get in the car right after the second service, and I have to drive for three hours to a little church plant in Champaign-Urbana because they're fighting with each other, and they're, just, they're beating each other's brains out. And they're all young, and, and, and they're all inexperienced, but they've lost the peace. And I'm going to go and try to encourage them to think about this a little bit differently. But am I willing to, to make the effort to do that? Are we willing to be people that don't just experience the peace of God and just bask in the new light of that day, but are we willing to actually sacrifice and to give of our energy and our time and our passion? Are we willing to commit ourselves and say, I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to follow the Prince of Peace. Is the darkness lingering? You bet. (laughs) No question about it. We can't even get the lights in here to work. (laughs) I know that we all have dark places in our lives, even those of us who follow Jesus. But do we understand that the sky is no longer completely dark? There's more to be revealed. When you come back next week, we're not going to be at 18 degrees. We're going to be at 12 degrees. We're going to have a little more clarity. But today there's real hope through the words of Isaiah. The darkness confronts our faith. It challenges us. And we must ask ourselves, how will we respond? Will we focus on our circumstances and draw the conclusion that God doesn't care? Or will we look to the dawn of redemption and be set free by the Son who alone can end our spiritual captivity. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that a light has dawned. I thank you that it's dawned in in the lives of so many people sitting in this room. Father, I thank you that the sky is no longer completely dark. 
And we don't see everything. We don't see all of the glory yet. We don't see all the majesty yet. That day is still in the future. But we see enough to know that your promises are true. They're true for little Cullen, who we baptized this morning. And they're true for every man and woman in this room who will put our faith in you alone for salvation. Father, I pray that we would believe, that we would trust this light that comes as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and that that trust would not only bring peace into our own soul, but it would make us agents of your peace, of your kingdom on this earth, in our day, in our generation. We pray for the glory of Jesus and for our good. Amen.